It's been over 70 years since Duke Ellington recorded Such Sweet Thunder, a jazz suite based on Shakespeare's plays, 11 songs linked to Shakespearean characters like Othello and Lady Macbeth, with a final number that's a tribute to Shakespeare himself. Douglas M. Lanier wrote an essay titled Jazzing Up Shakespeare for the Folgers' Shakespeare in American Life exhibition catalog in 2007, in which he tells us Such Sweet Thunder was composed in 1957 after a series of concerts for the Stratford, Ontario Shakespeare Festival, performances which affirmed Ellington's stature as a hip classic. Stratford's invitation of jazz musicians of an older generation to the festival reinforced the perception that pre-bebop jazz now constituted an art form akin in cultural stature to Shakespeare. Ellington's suite acknowledges this act of legitimation, but it also deepens the affinities between Shakespeare's art and Ellington's own, suggesting in several ways that the analogy is not superficial, but thoroughgoing. In his program notes for the first performance of Such Sweet Thunder, Ellington worries that, as classics, he and Shakespeare labor under the public misperception that their arts are for the cultural elite, making some reluctant to expose themselves and join the audience. On the one hand, Ellington stresses that whether it be Shakespeare or jazz, the only thing that counts is the emotional effect on the listener. No special knowledge is required. The power of the performance's immediate impact on the human ear aligns both Ellington and Shakespeare with popular culture and potentially democratizes their respective audiences. On the other hand, Ellington claims that his art and Shakespeare's are sufficiently sophisticated to reward repeated encounters, an assertion which differentiates their arts from mere pop ephemera. Here Ellington articulates the musical ambitions of his later career. To create a music with the prestige and virtuosity of other classics and the inclusive immediacy of popular culture. That from an essay titled Jazz Up Shakespeare by Douglas M. Lanier for the Folger Shakespeare Library. We're hearing a movement from the suite titled Madness in Great Ones, a portrait of Hamlet. Douglas Lanier contends that Duke Ellington created a milestone in the relationship between jazz and Shakespeare with his suite. In 2016, the Little Theatre of Wilkes-Barre brought Shakespeare and jazz together to explore the power of jazz to open us to fresh insights into the inexhaustible tragedy that is Hamlet. The production was so well received that they dared to approach another of Shakespeare's masterworks through a musical lens. Not knowing at the time they would turn to Shakespeare to help connect with their audience during the COVID-19 pandemic, they have just created Shakestream. David Parmalee is general manager of the Little Theatre of Wilkes-Barre, and he fills us in on the impact of the pandemic on the theatre and their creative response. It has been so difficult 
to know what to do. And many times we restructured the season and a couple of times even announced it and said, this looks good, only to have to change it at the last moment when the governor and the CDC came up with new guidelines. And of course, ultimately, we're not only trying to protect the audience who might want to attend live theater, but also the actors. And you can distance the audience, but not the actors. The actors have to be close together. So it has proven impossible to plan for any kind of live theater. And still is. We still don't know what our reopening will be. Hopefully soon. And by that, we mean a period of possibly months. But we've had to tell people, we'll let you know. Because what do any of us know? The crystal ball is in the shop for service. And yet you are always concerned with people who are like you and your colleagues who just have that urge to do theater. And you know that we are out here wanting to experience theater. So you've been coming up with ways to try to tide us over. Yes, we've actually seen this throughout the Valley, which, as you know, Erica, is a a hotbed of community theater. There are so many active theaters doing good work here, and they've all found ways to fulfill both sides of their mission. Uh, One side, of course, is to offer the audience something to enjoy during this, this period of shutdown when the theaters are dark. And the other, of course, is to offer the people who want to perform a way to do that. And as my wife always says, there are many arts you can do alone. You can sing alone. You can write alone. You can even play an instrument alone. But you can't do theater alone. We have to have some kind of a venue that allows people to perform together. So we've seen theaters in the area do Zoom productions. We've seen them do outdoor productions with face coverings or the acrylic face masks that are used. We've seen outdoor productions where everybody stayed distanced We've seen various kinds of online things done. We just saw one done where everybody did a monologue, and the monologues were filmed and compiled together. So the actors literally never had to meet. Our response was we've actually had three streaming offerings. Uh, One was at our gala in September where we normally get together and announce the season forthcoming. We did announce a season that turned out was not to be, but we were able to live stream that gala presentation with excerpts from shows we are planning to do, and also a one-act play, and put it on the internet direct from the theater in real time, which was quite a learning experience. We filmed six one-acts that we put online in January, where the actors wore masks and it was part of the plot. And we, we didn't live stream those, but we filmed them live in one take just as they happened and put them up a couple of weeks later for people to enjoy. And they're still up on the Little Theater's YouTube channel and on our Facebook page. And the next thing we've got coming up is the Shakespeare. It makes good sense to cluster your Shakespeare pieces. Tell us more. Uh, the, The one big obstacle to streaming theater or putting it in any kind of a broadcast or online medium is permission. Of course, all these wonderful plays and musicals we do were written and composed by somebody, and you have to buy the rights to perform them through a licensing agency. Well, those licensing agencies are oriented 100% toward live performance. Uh, Actors like to say their work is writing on water. We do the performance, and it goes away. And when the echoes fade, that performance is gone. For that reason, the licensing companies don't allow those performances to be filmed or streamed. So the only material you can film or stream is something where you get a special license or something in the public domain or something original where you know the author and the author is willing to allow you to stream it. 
And, of course, the first thing that comes to mind is Shakespeare. Mr. Shakespeare's estate has been long out of the copyright business, and all his works are in public domain. And we were fortunate enough to have film of two productions from the recent past, very professionally filmed by our camera person, Tom Mooney, with good quality video and sound that are available to stream, and film of one production, which was our three one-acts from 2019, where I was the author, and they're actually titled Three Romances About Macbeth. They're very modern plays about modern people, three pairs of lovers, all of whom are involved in various productions of Macbeth. So our thought was, let's combine those three productions we have on film. One is our Jazz Hamlet from 2016, Shakespeare's Hamlet. The second one is King Lear from February of 2020. And the third is three romances about Macbeth, and the three together are the Shakespeare. The thing that we know is that you are someone who cares deeply about being true to Shakespeare, but you also have a sense that there are ways to produce Shakespeare that perhaps might open up some of the plays to people who might not want to go to the classics or just to people who love theater and love Shakespeare. And so what did you do with Hamlet without doing it because it was a cool thing to do? Well, you're, you're absolutely right, Erica. I have always loved Shakespeare, back from the days when kids read the big tragedies in high school. And I did, too, and I liked them right away. did some work with Shakespeare in college. And, of course, there are some barriers to enjoying it, uh, one of which is the length, so the plays are usually cut. Uh, the other is the language. And it's, it is among the most difficult tasks of an actor in a Shakespeare production to bring that language to the audience. So that even though the vocabulary might be 400 years out of date, everybody always knows what the intent of the character is. When you approach Shakespeare, one of the first things people tend to do nowadays is to decide how are we doing it? Where are we setting it? What will the look of the costumes and the scenery be? Are you going to do it in a traditional way? Or are you somehow updating it or changing it? And I, I think the latter is probably more common than the former. So when we approached Hamlet, uh, first we cut it down from its, its four hours that it would take if it were done word for word to a much more accessible length. We set it in Newport, Rhode Island, in a mansion during the Jazz Age, the 1920s. And the third thing we did was to actually engage two local fantastic jazz musicians, uh, Ken McGraw on keyboards and Nick Driscoll on saxophone clarinet, and flute to provide accompaniment to those iconic monologues of Hamlet and also incidental music. So, for example, when Ophelia is buried, that incredibly sad scene where Ophelia has arguably committed suicide and she's buried, uh, we have a New Orleans jazz funeral because what an opportunity. We have a clarinet player right there. The play is set in the 1920s. So we create a jazz funeral out of that occasion. So that was our Jazz Hamlet in 2016, and it was an extraordinary production with Scott Collin in the lead as Hamlet, the role of a lifetime for any actor, and a, a truly exceptional supporting cast. And then with Lear, you don't make it easy for yourselves. <laughs> well, Hamlet is claimed probably more often than any other play to be the best play ever written. 
and I wouldn't attempt to argue with that. But Lear has its own wonderful grandness to it. There's, there's something about it that, to me, is incredibly special. The action never stops. Uh, it's about huge themes of humanity. The language is incredibly moving. The, the tragedy of a king who has destroyed his own life and the life of his beloved daughter through his own foolishness is just moving in a way that no play ever is. And it's about division. The play starts with Lear dividing the kingdom. And what I learned when I studied the play and had a wonderful professor in college was you can't divide the kingdom. If you divide the kingdom, chaos is the result. And, and then the first scene, literally, Lear divides his kingdom. And the results are horrible tragedy of so many types. So we set our production of Lear during the 1960s, and we, we refer to it as Woodstock Lear, because that, too, was a time of great division. Uh, when some would say that the, the fractures in American society that we're seeing now began when a generation decided to change all the rules. For example, when the Hells Angels were hired to provide security at Altamont, and, and we knew what happened when, when those rules got changed. So keeping with the idea of music accompanying Shakespeare, we found a marvelous local guitarist. He plays all kinds of music, but he's kind of known for his tremendous touch with the blues. His name is Matt Bennick, and I had heard him in concert. And we brought Matt in, because we had a Woodstock Lear, to play solo electric guitar. And that solo guitar finds its way into more moments than you could possibly imagine. And it makes the production, I think, very, very special. So we have two musical adaptations of Shakespeare. And you are a playwright as well as a director and a theater manager and an actor. And you have, over the years with us, talked about not only plays that you have helped bring to the stage that are other people's, like Shakespeare, but also plays of your own. And that is this impulse to create these pieces after Macbeth. Yes, uh, I am a very, very novice playwright. It is a difficult craft to learn, certainly, one that I, I never thought I possibly could, and I, I set my hand to it, hoping for a good outcome, and was very, very fortunate right away through Scranton Fringe to be given an opportunity to stage some work, and was even more fortunate a little later to be able to stage one-act plays at Little Theater. For any playwright, especially a new one like myself, to have your plays not just read, but given a full production is an amazing experience, and I'm very, very grateful for it. They got a, a very nice reception, I thought, and much of that was because we attracted a veteran cast who performed them so well. For a beginning playwright to attract the kind of cast I was able to find for Three Romances About Macbeth is a great gift, and the performances to me were, were quite moving. What ways in the different pieces did you evoke Macbeth? Well, that was one of the most fun parts about it, Erica. The, the inspiration for the first one, we were leaving Gaslight Theater up at one of the local shopping centers. They had space for a time, and next to it was a laundromat called Spot to Be Gone, which is a, a pretty well-known local laundromat. They have a couple of locations, and I thought to myself, oh, my gosh, Spot to Be Gone, what a great location for Lady Macbeth. So the first play was two young lovers. In fact, they're not lovers yet. They're they're just starting to fall in love, who are in a production of Macbeth at the theater next door to the laundromat. And they're meeting late at night to do their laundry. 
So it's people approaching the potential or the possibility of love who are in a production of Macbeth. The second play, we have two ex-lovers whose romance went up in flames and have not spoken since for many years, who are conned into directing a production of Macbeth by a theater that feels it'll go out of business otherwise if they don't do it, because they're the only ones who can handle it. And they meet in a room and revisit the production of Macbeth they were in so long ago. Uh, The third one, we have a long-divorced husband and wife who were in a production in another lifetime, as it were, who are contemplating perhaps auditioning again. So in the course of all three of these productions, the actors lapse into scenes from Macbeth that they remember or aspire to do. And really, it was uh, such a fun way to do some of the highlights of the play. Obviously, you know, we use some of the more iconic moments in the well-known monologues and scenes from Macbeth, but they, they do them as part of their union or reunion as lovers. They perform pieces of Macbeth together. So we not only had to have actors who could handle those very delicate love scenes, but also actors who could handle Macbeth. David, tell us then when these pieces will launch, how we can get to enjoy them. Well, we're staging them, so to speak, online. We're streaming them once per month. On April 24th, which is around Shakespeare's birthday, we'll be streaming Jazz Hamlet, 8 o'clock on Saturday. That stream will be hitting the Internet. And you can watch it on the Facebook page, and we'll be adding it to the YouTube channel shortly thereafter for people who aren't part of the Facebook world. Shakespeare has a church record of his christening or baptism, whatever they did at the time, from April 26th. So people think he was born somewhere between the 23rd and the 26th. So we're staging that in honor of his 457th birth anniversary. May 22nd, about a month later, we'll have King Lear. And June 12th, three romances about Macbeth. And all of those productions have a show sponsor that is sponsoring the stream, And the Shakespeare in general has several very, very generous overall sponsors, folks who who stepped in to help us make this into an effective fundraiser for the theater. One thing we found is that a big old building like ours is surprisingly expensive to maintain, even when it's not being used. So during this time when we're not allowed to earn our keep by selling tickets, we're offering the Shakespeare to people with very generous local sponsorship. And you'll find our sponsors on the page. And we're also asking folks to donate much on the model of public broadcasting when they enjoy the broadcast itself. I ask you, please, to keep us posted on any changes COVID-related. Well, Erica, the, the press release that will be the most pleasurable in my entire life to write is when I sit down to write the press release to you saying, here is the reopening date for Little Theater for live audiences. Uh, I could write it right now. The only thing I can't do is put a date on it. But that, that will bring me an awful lot of joy to send you that one. Playwright David Parmalee, General Manager of the Little Theatre of Wilkes-Barre, speaking with us about the ensemble's new project, Shakespeare. Three theatrical pieces to be released, one each month, April, May, and June. Jazz Hamlet, Woodstock Lear, and three romances about Macbeth. 
Jazz Hamlet will be posted online on April 24th to get things started. For more information, on the web, ltwb.org. That's the website for the Little Theatre of Wilkesbury, ltwb.org. Shakestream from the Little Theatre, and Shakestream is one word, S-H-A-K-E-S-T-R-E-A-M. Shakestream from the Little Theatre of Wilkesbury. For more information on the web, ltwb.org.